don't have enough time to sit down and read all the best Bitcoin articles? Well, let us read them for you. This is a Crypto Economy Quick Read. What is up, crew? Welcome back to the Crypto Economy Podcast. Uh, so I got a fun one today. This one is along the lines of what we had yesterday, um, as I was explaining. Uh, this one's actually a tweet storm. I've got quite the collection of tweet storms in a folder on my desktop here um, that I've been wanting to get to. And um, this one uh, is very much in line with uh, the one we talked about yesterday from Jimmy Song about the bugs in the New York agreement or the, the client that the New York agreement was based around and um, uh, how it would have caused massive problems for the network and kind of what defense there is for it, or at least towards the end of this tweet storm talks about that nature in uh, the nature of uh, light clients, SPV clients, and full, full node clients um, in respect to that um, uh, development, I guess you could say, in the Bitcoin's history. Um, so, uh, but this one is, uh, again, by Giacomo Zucco. Actually, I don't think I said that before, but this is a tweet storm by Giacomo. And um, we've done, uh, I think, one or two of his tweet storms before. But this one is about uh, the SPV light nodes and how they can be thought of as an analogy for digital coinage. So without further ado, I'm going to just go ahead and jump into this one, and we'll talk about all of it afterward. So this is a tweet storm by Giacomo Zucco on SPV clients as digital coinage. You guys know that I have a fetish for analogies, so bear with me about this one. Thesis. If Bitcoin is digital gold, then the pseudo-SPV model for light nodes is digital coinage, with basically the same trade-offs and risks. Argument development following in this tweet storm. Physical gold was a great form of money for ancient civilizations. Great durability in time, good divisibility and density trade-off, fundamental scarcity before, you know, asteroid ocean floor mining, and not too much elastic supply due to extraction costs, fair access, and recognizability. The last feature, recognizability, was not super easy to leverage in everyday commerce, though. Sure, you can use hydrostatic weighing to check the gold pieces you receive, but that's often not practical. The verification cost for merchants was kinda high with bare gold pieces. For this reason, many civilizations through history eventually gave up some of their gold's, quote, independence in exchange for outsourced verification to reduce verification costs in everyday exchange. A trusted third party, often a smith, a jeweler, a military protector, could provide particular pieces of gold with their, quote, signature, some sign which was easy to recognize but difficult to reproduce. Checking this sign was less expensive than performing hydrostatic weighing, but sadly, there ain't no such thing as a free lunch, as we know. Trusted third parties involved in coinage have been known to often abuse this position, almost systematically. Whenever they had some kind of extent monopoly, 
they would debase coins. Always. Now, the situation wasn't as bad as with modern fiat money. They still had to save face about the gold content. Debasement was slow, stealthy, gradual, with some level of plausible deniability. There still was an easy way to detect it by any, quote, hydrostatic full node out there. Competition among coinage providers contributed to keep it often under control. Of course, the more competition you had, the less this kind of attack represented a concern. It's worth noting that the most disastrous episodes of debasement occurred under very wide coinage monopolies, often politically or militarily established, i.e. the late Roman Empire. But it's not so hard, at the end, to enforce monopolies when we talk about trusted third parties. They tend to be, by design, very easy to censor, corrupt, hijack, blackmail, etc. So, even before the modern tragedy of the rise of the absolutist, democratic nation-states, with their baggage of legal tender laws, gold expropriation, ban of monetary alternatives, central banking and abolition of gold pegging, which made hyperinflation and manipulations trivial to perform, they already represented a pretty huge security hole in the monetary system. Now, introducing Bitcoin. Like physical gold, it's peer-to-peer -peer and independent. It's not scriptural money based on some trusted third party. You can check every transaction against the rules and verify on your own. Sure, you are trusting the fact that hash rate is typically not colluding for more than 50% with the payer in order to reorg after many confirmations and double spending you. Assuming that's a reasonable expectation, is it? You can verify the digital gold you receive independently without any trusted third party involved. But, like hydrostatic weighing tools, full nodes are often too expensive or impractical for everyday transactions. Many Bitcoin users want to receive money without maintaining their own validating full node. It's perceived as something nerdy and specialistic. Many Bitcoin merchants just want to receive money using their mobile phone or their tablet. The Bitcoin blockchain is just too heavy. Blocks are too big and too frequent to satisfy a difficult transferability and verifiability trade-off to run on those devices. Sure, you can easily connect the light device with your full node over Tor, but many merchants nowadays, illiterate in cybersec and used to the cloud paradigm, don't even know how to deploy or maintain a trusted computer where they could run their own node. So the Bitcoin civilization started to rely on coinage as well. That happened with a little help by Satoshi himself. He proposed a theoretical trustless verification scheme for light nodes, SPV, based on the presence of inclusion proofs and the absence of fraud proofs. While a system to check inclusion proofs was relatively easy to implement, Merkle roots in headers, bloom filters, and all that jazz, a system to check the absence of fraud proofs proved to be very tricky. It may even be impossible for all we know today, and nobody has ever implemented it. So, what people call SPV today is actually the practice of trusting the hash rate majority not just to prevent double spending, but to properly verify and enforce the Bitcoin rules. Merchants are outsourcing verification because, while entirely possible, it is too expensive or impractical. 
Welcome, not so much, back, coinage. Of course, coinage becomes a major problem only when coinage providers are colluding in cartels. Hashers are not exactly trusted third parties, and that's good. We are operating under the assumption that they are way harder to censor, corrupt, hijack, blackmail, etc. And it may even work. But, while we could have a realistic, is it, expectation that overall hashers themselves will not systematically collude, we know for a fact that ASIC production is still, hopefully not for long, a de facto monopoly, able to easily influence majority hash rate at will. We aren't even talking about theoretical attacks here. They just tried this last year. A business cartel named NYA, or the New York Agreement, who wanted to fool pseudo-SPV nodes with false or counterfeit bitcoins sent against the consensus rules, co-opted the monopolist, for now, of ASIC production, which in turn co-opted and blackmailed most of the major mining pools, pushing them to signal the intention to collude to perform this attack. If they would have followed that signaling with actions remains unclear. The main developer working for the cartel, Garzik, publicly stated that the intention was precisely that of forcing the pseudo-SPV nodes to follow the new rules. The specific goal of the NYA attack wasn't debasement. It was further mining and node centralization, along with replacement of the free Libre open source software development process with corporate developers. But it's not hard to imagine similar attacks aimed to debasement inflation. In fact, such attacks were attempted by some hash rate minority during halvings. They are anyway the natural game theory outcome when coinage providers are free to change or manipulate rules at will. The NYA attack failed. To be more precise, it was called off just moments before an obvious, inevitable, and disastrous failure because too many validating full nodes would have rejected it. But in a pseudo-SPV world, it would have certainly been successful. Conclusions? Well, 1. We shouldn't make full nodes harder to run, ever. 2. We should try to make full nodes easier to run. And 3. We should understand and explain the reasons to make extra efforts to run full nodes. We know what coinage does in the long run, so use that f***ing hydrostatic scale. Alright, so that was our little tweet storm from Giacomo Zucco that I thought was a really good analogy, um, uh, particularly uh, pointing out, it's one thing that just blew my mind at the time, is how unconcerned the players in the New York agreement were with the fact that there was visceral disagreement with what they were doing. Um, I mean, regularly they would announce, like Coinbase, uh, uh, Brian Armstrong would say that they were speaking on behalf of all of their customers, which was like millions of people, like 9 or 10 million customers at the time, who probably, the vast majority of which were probably just casual, like average retail investors who saw Coinbase as the easiest way to get into Bitcoin and had no idea of the block size debate and its nuances or what it meant. And they were doing this all in the face of the fact that 
the entire engineering and development community outside of Garzik um, was telling them that this was not a good idea, that this was going to be a disaster, and it was not as simple a process as they thought it was. And it turns out they have been uh, proven right, basically, uh, on multiple occasions now, um, particularly with the devastation, like the, the, the sheer magnitude of the bug that was left in it. And they weren't even concerned. They weren't hiring reviewers. They weren't searching out new coders. They didn't care. They just were concerned with, and they explicitly stated on multiple occasions that as long as we get most of the hash power, all the SPV clients will follow. And most of them were like clients, so it was totally okay, and nobody would ever know. And I just thought that was the 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 sheer way they went about it. They thought because they had you know, the 10 major businesses and uh, the hash power, which was like, you know, six pools behind them, that that was it, that the debate was over, that they didn't have to ask anybody else's opinion, the nodes didn't matter, that, oh, who cares about nodes, you shouldn't even be running your own full node. I mean, this was, this was constant. It wasn't like these were like one-off things taken out of context. This was their argument over and over and over again. You don't need to run a full node. Um, you know, we're the businesses that are in the industry, and we represent 80% of the users collectively with all of our wallets and our users and Coinbase and all of this stuff. So we are the majority. We're the economic majority. And yet, practically none of the existing nodes were downloading their clients. Of course, there were hundreds of new nodes coming from practically nowhere and, oddly enough, on a bunch of AWS servers that were downloading this worthless client that was full of bugs, but nobody else seemed to be, for good reason. And thank the Bitcoin gods, or the internet gods, they continued to not download that client. Um, and, like, I was a user, I was a, um, still am a customer of Coinbase, uh, but I didn't, they didn't speak for me. Uh, and I explicitly downloaded, that's when I started up my full node again. I had run one um, some years before and then cut it off because it just seemed, you know, not super important and there wasn't any specific reason to do so. Um, and I downloaded the user-activated software client. I was like, I'm not playing this game. Um, like, I'm not using your, your shitcoin that's just arbitrarily decided by a handful. And it was, what's funny is I wasn't even totally against the idea of a block size increase, but I would never have let it go come about the way that they were trying to make it come about. Um, it was completely antithetical to how open source software works and how consensus should be agreed on. Um, this, this was a massively, massively contentious debate, and in their minds, they had made the decision and it was over because they were the ones that controlled it and everybody else was going to just have to go along and stop running their full nodes. It just, you don't, when, when there is contention in a protocol like this, the default should be to do nothing. That's what makes the system powerful, is that if you can't reach consensus on a change, nothing changes. And it, uh, again, I think it proves the Bitcoin developers, the core developers, completely right. I mean, you know, it was hundreds of them, and they all basically came down when they could not reach an agreement, even though some of them were totally 
felt that the size of two megabytes or three megabytes wasn't even a terribly disastrous change to be made when it was clear there was no way to reach consensus about having a breaking change, even if we're talking about a couple of years out, when it was obvious that that wasn't going to happen smoothly and this was going to create serious, serious problems for the Bitcoin network, everybody was against it. It was down the board. Everybody was like, no, I'm not, I'm not for this. This is just not the way we do things. So every one of the engineers had basically said, all right, this, this just can't happen this way. And even better is there was a, a compromise, quote unquote, found by way of soft fork to increase the base signature data allowed, which would allow for the more complex and more sophisticated agreements and uh, scripting possibilities that were so important to building new layers and making secure, trustless layers on top of this thing also got us a quote-unquote base block size increase in a way, um, but did so with compatibility, they decided to go ahead with it anyway. They're like, well, we don't even care that you've you know worked to have a soft work version of this because we just don't want you we just don't want the engineers here anymore and what do you know it was over and over again they talked about we're going to fire all the developers we're going to fire them and it's like all right good luck now you got now you got garzik who clearly has no idea what he's doing certainly not to the degree that it would maintain a multi you know, $100 billion plus network, he would have killed it. He would have absolutely killed it. They would not have produced a, they did not, they did not. Some miners continued to try to go ahead with it. And that's how we know the bugs that were in it. They couldn't produce a single block. All, all for their crying and screaming that this was just a minor change, that we just tweak one number and everything just falls into place. They couldn't produce one block. That should be the end of their credibility forever in this space. And because of that, it brings to light the risk of just having incumbents decide that because of their position, they speak for everyone. And that is not how this works. It just isn't. And because of that, I am 10 times more concerned about the ability to run a full node than I was before it. So I appreciate what happened because it proved a lesson that it's like Roger Ver always says that because there's a free market, quote unquote, in hash power, that oh, they'll never you know, they'll never go against the market or the customers or whatever. They're always pleased their customers. But what option do their quote unquote customers have? That's like saying there's a free market in banking, therefore they would never just collude with a central bank to have an uh, inflationary policy that their customers would abandon or would uh, see as against their best interests. And yet that's exactly what we have. There was a free market in banking before central bank came about. It wasn't defensible against government. Government did a great job of just bringing all of the banks into a single overarching inflationary and fractional reserve system and the fact that there was a free market did not make it in the least bit defensible against a central uh, uh, monopolistic actor why would hash power be any different is if there is no way to audit the system 
at the individual level, then it is not defensible. The very idea of the, the key to an SPV node, if you were to consider it that the free market that will just leave with the hash power, it would suggest that Roger Ver's perspective would require that the customer themselves, that the user be fully informed, aware, watching, and then they would have to respond. They would have to actively respond. That it is the user's responsibility to find new software to uh, stop using the coin or you know, implement their own um, replay protection or whatever it is. The, it would require them to change their system to, for the business to completely overhaul their software. If the, burden, if the burden of the cost of a corrupt actor is on the victim by default, that's not a defensible system. The idea with running a full node is that the entire burden is on the bank or the hashing power um, actor, the, the, um, the miner. And the key to that, the reason that is, is because if you're running a full node, the victim does not have to be aware, does not have to know what it means to have one software versus another, does not have to assess the viability of this new inflation or verification scheme that uh, they do not have to change their software, they do not have to change their business, they do not have to reinstall anything on their computer. They, by default, simply kick them from their network. It is entirely the responsibility and the burden of the corrupt actor to try to get people to join them in a system where you can run a full node. In a system where everyone runs like clients, it is entirely the responsibility and the burden of the victim to get everyone to not follow the corrupt actor. So in the Roger Ver world, where everybody is just running SPV and light clients and just trusting the hashing majority in order to determine the validation rules and the consensus rules on the network, the, the awesome power of defense against this is that the the victims or the uh, the users can mutually they, they can they can get together on social media on Twitter and Reddit and and drum up this political campaign to get angry at the hash power and that they can get everyone together to collectively download a different client and refuse to accept the validation rule change and that everyone has to be aware of it. Everyone has to be fully aware that this is happening and they have to constantly be vigilant about the fact that the rules have not been changed. They have to all be equally informed and philosophically uh, in consensus about what those monetary rules should be and everyone has to get together and at the same time change their software, change their businesses' payment systems and uh, all of their services and block explorers and everybody has to upgrade and download the alternative client specifically in order to deny the hash rate majority the ability to alter the validation rules under them, which is the equivalent of saying that, oh, the banks won't um, manipulate the uh, monetary system because obviously all of the customers could get together and drum up a big political campaign and realize that inflation is bad and everybody would agree and they would all uh, 
remove their deposits from the bank and shut down their accounts and go put it into another bank and cut up all their their debit cards and go open a new debit card with the bank that will uh, work in their behalf and all that great stuff. If, if that was our way to defend against the banks, we already know how that plays out. Like, it's not that's not a defensible system. That's a terrible, terrible burden on the user and the customer. But the reverse, the world where everybody runs a full node, or not necessarily everybody, but where you can easily run a full node and where you are running your own full node, you don't have to do anything. You don't have to do absolutely anything. You don't have to be informed. You don't have to know what this hash rate majority is trying to change. You don't have to understand the change, whether it is good or bad in any subjective measure based on anyone's opinion. If there is a single bit of invalid information in their code base or in the blocks they produce that makes it incompatible with your client, they are kicked off the network. You don't have to withdraw your money from the bank and open up a new account. You just kick the bank from your network. That's it. They are now unable to reach the customers that you are connected to and unable to reach you until they go back to the correct rules, the rules that you are validating by yourself. So which one of those systems sounds like it will survive the test of time? Um, so I think that's a Giacomo's explanation, I think, did a really good job, or his analogy did a really good job of explaining why those um, elements are at play, uh, um, or explain why it is that the SPV is not a defense against this. And we saw that. Um, and I think it's a really, really important history lesson, particularly for new people in the, in the uh, uh, ecosystem and the crypto economy space, um, because you're going to have a really, really hard time surviving in the crypto economy if you don't, if you're not aware that the only way to secure the rules independently, that the only real security in the system is independent verification. If you can't audit the Fed yourself, you're just trusting someone else to do it, which, which means you've got no, the system is not any better. It's no, it's fundamentally no different. You're just trusting person B as opposed to person A to do this verification for you. And person B is fundamentally no more different, no more trustworthy. It's still a subjective idea of who do I trust? Is it A, B, C, D, or E? It doesn't matter. Bitcoin is about trusting no one. It is about being able to trust the code and your own verification at your own level of it. All right. So my rant was uh, quite a bit longer than the actual tweet storm, but uh, I hope you guys enjoyed that, and I hope it uh, kind of taught you something about the nature of running a full node versus running a light client and just disagreeing with the hash power. Um, and uh, uh, hopefully these two episodes kind of put into perspective the, uh, the idea of validating things independently. Um, so... So with that, we will close this here. Don't forget to follow Giacomo Zucco and Jimmy Song. Uh, if you want to hear more about these topics, they do a lot of writing on this and just Bitcoin in general. Um, and they've got a lot of really, really interesting perspectives. Giacomo always has some really great analogies. Um, so uh, it's really good to follow them. And you can just find him at Giacomo Zucco on Twitter. That's his Twitter tag. 
And uh, obviously, I will link to him in the show notes as well as the uh, Twitter post. And even though this post, the tweet storm that he had was is still like, I think it's like three months old at this point. Um, uh, even though that is the case, I will um, still link to that and uh, the Thread Reader app. I think it's still on the um, Thread Reader uh, Unroll page, if I'm not mistaken. I'm not sure how long they last, uh, but I will link to that as well if you want to just see it and uh, see it in full uh, yourself. Uh, but with that, don't forget to follow me at the Crypto Economy on Twitter, uh, Medium, and Mastodon. The Mastodon instance I am on is at the Crypto Economy at BitcoinHackers.org. Uh, you can find a link directly to that in my Twitter profile. Um, so check me out up there. I'm uh, up there chatting every once in a while too. We've got a bunch of Bitcoin maximalists over in the Mastodon uh, uh, federated Twitter alternative, if you will. And don't forget to subscribe to the show on iTunes, as well as leave me some feedback. If you would like to support the show, um, leaving me a five-star review is a great way to do that. It really helps for exposure. Um, you can also share it with everybody else you know in the crypto economy or people who want to learn about Bitcoin, its history, the philosophy, the cypherpunks, all this stuff. Uh, we hit it all here on the Crypto Economy Podcast. Um, and if you haven't gone back and listened to some of the previous episodes, some of the early episodes, there's a ton of great stuff back there. Um, and I'm thinking about maybe even refreshing some of the really, really good ones so I can add some additional commentary because I think like the first 40 episodes or so, I really just wasn't adding any commentary at all. I think I just wasn't comfortable enough with talking on the podcast. So um, uh, definitely go back and check some of those out if you have not yet. There's some great stuff back there. Uh, and uh, obviously, I will leave my Bitcoin donation address available in the show notes, the Twitter post, uh, all those places, so that if you would like to send me a couple of bucks and help out with my coffee or the hosting costs or the domain names and all that good stuff, um, uh, if you would like to do that, you can always send me a couple of bucks to my donation address, and it is massively, massively appreciated. Thank you so much for that. And um, I guess that will close us. That, that should be everything that I wanted to cover. Um, don't forget, you can buy your Trezor, though. Uh, if you haven't gotten your hardware wallet yet, use my affiliate link. And if you buy from Trezor every once in a while and you want to get their new stuff, save the bookmark as my affiliate link, and it will never cost you a dime. But every time you buy from the Trezor store, you will send a couple of bucks my way. Uh, that'll be a huge help as well. Thank you so much for everyone who has contributed so far. Okay, guys, uh, I will catch you all tomorrow with another episode of the Crypto Economy Podcast. Take it easy, guys.